Is depression funny? Depression is funny to me sometimes because I'll watch other happy people and I'll start laughing about like my own stuff. And I'm like, then why am I, why am I sad? Like, what's wrong with me? And it's just like funny. You know what I mean? Like, no, I'm, things are good. I'm just, it's just my perspective. It's my outlook. So that's why I think depression can be funny. Doc says there's something wrong with me. I got a sadness I can't shake now. Is there something I can't take now? It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe. I interview funny people who have dealt with depression firsthand. A lot of the time, they're famous people, celebrities, folks who have hit it big, people you've heard of. Once in a while, people you might not have heard of, but you should hear from. Mike Brown, New York City. Mike Brown is a comedian who's lived in New York all his life. I've spent a lot of time reading about Mike, reading stuff he wrote, watching videos of him performing, and talking to him. And what I came away with is that there are two events that define Mike more than any others. One event he uses in his comedy, the other he does not. The first happened when he was around 13, and he moved from his mom's place in Queens to live with his dad for the first time in his life in Harlem. Moving to Harlem was kind of a scary thing. My mom, she was, uh, she had just got married. She just got remarried to a new dude, and, um, and he's great. He was great, by the way. Um, so she just got remarried, and she's like, okay, there's not a lot of schools in Queens where I was living that would have opportunities. And there's a school called Frederick Douglass Academy that looks amazing. There's all these opportunities, and you should go to this school. But instead of commuting from Queens to Harlem, you can live with your dad, and you should have a good relationship with your dad, and your dad wants to have a relationship with you. And uh, for me, I was like, well, all my friends are going to be in Queens. I don't know anybody in Harlem. And um, I had to go for my future, I guess. And so it was just like I was shipped off. I felt like I was going to war, if that <laughs> makes any sense. But uh, <laughs> Harlem was very different than how it's depicted on TV now. But What do you mean it's depicted differently? I think, I think like when, when we look at Harlem, or I look at Harlem anyway, and when it is shown on TV, it, it looks very inclusive. It looks very up and coming. A lot of organic shops, a lot of... Uh, gluten-free things, a lot of <laughs> changes in uh, housing, a lot of mom-and-pop shops are no longer there, and um, it seems like it's a bustling community, and before, you know, there there were, like, drugs being sold on the corner, there were people getting shot time to time, um, it was definitely mostly black, you know, it was just a different feel, it was a little more gritty, you know, it was... Uh, like, people were scared to move to Harlem, and now I think people want to move to Harlem. Here's Mike on stage for the NBC online show Night Train with Wyatt Cenac. Everything is changing. Like, Harlem's changed, man. Like, even the guys selling, like, candy on the train, like, his swagger's a little off. I don't know if you notice, you know, they get on the train like, Excuse me, ladies and gentlemen! Excuse me, ladies and gentlemen! I'm trying to raise money for my basketball team, ladies and gentlemen! If anybody's interested, I got these organic candy treats, ladies and gentlemen. I got quinoa chips, ladies and gentlemen. I got kale, ladies and gentlemen. I got gluten-free gluten, ladies and gentlemen. 
white people like mayonnaise. I got that too, ladies and gentlemen. I also got the purple bag of Skittles. I don't know why. <laughs> You moved there during the the gritty drugs getting shot time. Yeah. What kind of an adjustment was that uh, was that for you? Like, because because then you're uprooted from your friends in your neighborhood, and then you're you're living with somebody who you hadn't been living with before. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, when you're when you're that age, I think that's like twelve, thirteen, and you're raised by one person, and then you're moving to another place to live. It is very jarring. So not only was I living with my father and his new wife, but I also was going to a new school and a new environment. So for, you know, anyone, if you don't know anything about Queens, it's very like rural suburban, I guess. You know, we have we have backyards and we have like one family houses or two family houses. It's, it's really nice driveway, the whole deal. In Harlem, it's a bunch of apartment buildings and brownstones and people piled on top of each other. And not only that. Going to school, I used to go to a Catholic school in Queens, and then going to a public school in Harlem was def- definitely a shell shock. Uh, there were more students there in my classes. Like in Queens, my whole entire class was the grade of twenty people. You know what I mean? And even just going to Harlem, where it it's multiplied by five, it's like a hundred people, maybe one hundred twenty-five people in my class. It was just a lot to take in. When this move happened, Mike was at a really vulnerable age. If you have depression, it often announces itself for the first time around 13 or 14. Being at my father's house at that time probably kicked it all off, you know, um, because I think that we go through the world trying to adjust and trying to see where we fit in. And when you're put in a new environment, you're really like, okay, I thought I was fitting in in this world that I was previously at, and now I'm in this new world, and I don't even know what's going on. So I'm trying to adjust to just dealing with my new world and also then trying to figure out how do I fit in there. And I think, um, like, the dynamics of people trying to be friends with people in the school and trying to, like, impress my dad in the same way. And You said you were trying to impress your dad. What do you mean? Yeah, well, um, so my dad, he's from Jamaica. He was born in Jamaica, and his upbringing was totally different than my American single mother upbringing. You know, Um, he has stories about, like, walking barefoot on a nail and the nail getting caught in his foot and them having to take the nail out his foot without any medication, and that was just Jamaica. Just deal with it, you know? As an American kid, I cannot imagine stepping on on a nail, as an adult now, I cannot imagine stepping on a nail and getting it pulled out. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. That's just not me. And uh, for my dad, it's like, oh, yeah, you step on a nail, you got to get it pulled out. That's just what we do. What's the problem? And I, th- <laughs> I think that uh, we always clashed on that. You know, um, I think my mom had a big influence on, you know, like the way I speak, the way I move, uh, the way I might comprehend certain certain issues. And my dad is just like... The opposite. It's it's weird because like they have like these really Jamaican names, and I, I used to do jokes about my name being Mike Brown and not being Jamaican enough or whatever. And I stopped doing it because my dad he came to a show and yelled at me <laughs> after a show, straight up yelled at me. He said, "Oh, you can't make fun of your name because your mom originally wanted to name you Ashley." <laughs> you real, Dad? You real? You real? You real? Go looking out. This is what he lost me. He said, yeah, I told you, you can't name my son Ashley because the kids are going to call him Ash Browns. (laughs) 
where I was at really? That's what you? That's the first thing that came to your mind? That's what you? Like potatoes, that's what you went? Dad, I'm going to public school in Harlem. What type of genius bullies? Are gonna tease me with puns about breakfast? Like, what do you think? My first day in school. Hey, hey, your name is Ashley. That's a girl's name. Wait a minute, Kwame. We can do better. <laughs> <laughs> Ashley? <laughs> Yo, check this out. You Ash Browns now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. See that girl sitting down over there? That's pancakes right there, man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's Ed Benedict on the swing, man. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's Bacon and Greg's, man. Yeah, yeah. What up? We the Breakfast Club. They just creep walk around. <laughs> <laughs> was living with him and kind of this this huge life change that happened at that at that relatively early age did that kind of amplify a depression that was already there did that did that kind of blow it out a little bit yeah definitely i i think it was uh i i don't know if i was able to really communicate with him or to just feel that I had the same support that I did at my mother's house, but I also didn't want to disappoint my mom by saying, okay, let me come back home, you know, because it was like I was trying to make her happy by going to the school. And while I was going to the school, I was also trying to make my dad happy, but I don't think that I really knew what I wanted. And I wasn't vocal enough to say, hey, I want to be home or, hey, I'm not comfortable here. That's a huge amount of pressure for a kid. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, Which brings us here today. <laughs> welcome to the show. Mike is able to laugh about that time in his life now, but take a look at what was happening. Mike's life had been turned upside down. At an age when depression and puberty are hitting full force, he's dropped into a rough neighborhood to live with someone he barely knows. It was bad. It got worse. I got really, really suicidal in high school. It, it was a mess. I just, like, I, I'm, I play video games. I'm not a huge gamer like I used to be, but I used to play a lot of video games because I liked the logic of it. You know, it's the same way I feel about math, uh, about comedy, where it's like, you say this thing, you get this laugh. You know, it's just like kind of a logic equation. So, like, if you're doing math, you're like, okay, I have this equation, I have these numbers, you do this, you get that. If you're playing a video game, you know, you have this objective. Do, the, do that objective and you get that. Where life seemed so unpredictable, I did like that kind of uh, stability. So, in real life, I think I was lacking that stability and I always thought, you know what? I can't do this anymore. I quit. And I would want to do that with like a video game if I didn't like it. I'm like, you know what? This game is too hard. I'm good. I get it. I'm over it. So my suicidal tendencies wasn't as much of a, oh, I'm so sad. This is the worst. It started to become, okay, well, this just life isn't for me. Okay, I accept it. I want to die. And that's what started happening. I tried cutting or I thought about cutting and I didn't do it because uh you know I wanted to I wanted to kill myself but I didn't want to hurt myself I know that makes no sense but <laughs> you don't want to step on the nail yeah you don't want to step on the nail I mean come on we're, we're Americans what are we doing so <laughs> I, I didn't want to do that uh what I thought was all right let me just go and suffocate myself because I thought that would be like a pleasurable way to die and it would be like less gruesome 
Like with a plastic bag? Yes, with the plastic bag. Oh my God. You know, yeah, because I, I saw that, uh, I knew that you couldn't have babies around plastic bags. And I thought that, hey, if I just tied up like a plastic bag, like around my head and just like fell asleep, I would be fine. Um, and, you know, this was like before the internet was like really a thing that you trusted. So it was just like, you know, you'd have your ideas and you just go. And so I remember I, I put the bag over my head and. You know, my dad and my stepmother were home, and I just, like, went into my room, and I was just, like, really cool about it. You know, like, I had finished my homework. I was like, all right, cool, you know, whatever. Oh, no, I didn't even do my homework because I was like, oh, I'm going to die. So I just went and got the plastic bag, went to the bed, I kind of uh, just tried to fall asleep, and I couldn't fall asleep. I don't know if it was that a bag was over my head. I don't know if it was uh, not tied tight enough, but— I laid there long enough to think, like, you know what, I don't want to do this. Like, I'm not 100% sure that I want to die, you know? Um, And I think that any time I've had, like, a suicidal tendency, I've always got to the point where I might have been, like, 99% sure that I wanted to do it. And there would be, like, that 1% is like, but do you really want to do this? (laughs) Right, right. And that 1% always— always, always, always has kept me alive, that 1%. Um, so for that attempt, I called 911, and I just wanted to speak to someone. I wanted to speak to someone who was not a friend, family. I was like, okay, let me just talk to you guys. And they basically talked me down, and then it then it got kind of weird because uh, when you call 911, especially for, like, suicides, the uh, police come to your apartment. Yeah, they come to your place. They come check on you. Yeah, they came and checked on me. I didn't know that was going to happen. So my dad answers the door, and he's like, you know, what's going on? And he didn't know that I was trying to commit suicide in the other room. So that's how he finds out. Um, And then we have to go to the hospital and have to, you know, answer all these questions. And I'm just, like, really thoroughly embarrassed. And I'm just like, oh, I wish I did kill myself because I'm so embarrassed by this thing. And, um... My dad, I don't think he was very, uh, like, we, we didn't really talk about that much because I don't know if it was like a, a kind of a Jamaican macho thing, but it was just like, okay, you're okay? All right, cool, cool, cool. Mm. <laughs> that was it. Mean? Yeah. But yeah, that was, that, was, that was really it, yeah. Still, police at your door, a trip to the ER, a lot of questions being asked. Mike's dad knew something was wrong. So did his mom. Mike started getting professional help. I saw a bunch of therapists, but I never really jived with them too much. Like, I I remember my mom kind of hooked me up with the therapist that was, like, in Queens. So it would be, like, some days I would go out with her to Queens, and I would see a therapist. And, like, I would really just go because after we would get apple pies from McDonald's. And so I was like, <laughs> okay, yeah, sure. <laughs> I'll see this therapist. I'm getting apple pies, baby. I'm good. <laughs> you know, But um, I don't know if I was able— uh, really able to just like share my feelings with the therapist at all, and um, and then I went to another therapist, and you know wasn't really able to share the feelings. Did you know what the problems were, and were unwilling to share them, or did you not know what the problems were? Um, I don't think I knew what the problem was really. I mean, um, it it, it sometimes I like I talk about like you know in the black community we really don't talk about mental health, we really don't talk about depression. You know, the uh, we have the phrase like, yo, it's all good. It's all good. And sometimes it's not all good. But because you're growing up, you know, as a black person in America, there's so many things to keep you down that you constantly have to remind yourself that you are OK 
But sometimes you're not okay, and you want to ask for help, but you don't want to seem weak. You don't want to seem like the system is beating you down, you know? So you kind of go through life with that shield on you the entire time. That's how I feel. Now, that coupled with, all right, I'm moving from Queens, and now I'm in, in Harlem. Mike Brown made it through high school, and as he mentioned earlier, he was drawn to math, to order, to certainty. And that took him to college at the New Jersey Institute of Technology in Newark to study engineering and to get a new start. It was like, oh, this is a time that I can, uh, I guess, reinvent myself. And being there was a, was a, was a great, you know, great time for me. And I remember my best friend, the last time I had a suicidal kind of like feeling there in, in, in college, I put up like an away message and he came to my dorm room and he's like, listen, I know that you've been suicidal before. I know that you're feeling suicidal now, and I can't really talk you down from this, but what I can tell you is that if you kill yourself, like, I'm not your friend. You know, like, I'm not messing with you. Like, that's it. And that's such a weird thing to be like, I'm threatening to take away this friendship if you die. Right. But it's like, yeah, of course, we can't be. Like, I'll, well, I'll be no good be. going to movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, I bring nothing to the table. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what are we doing? The best friend was Mike Muchoki. They were two of the only black people in the honors program. They were both named Mike, and they hit it off big time. Meeting a best friend was a pretty big deal for Mike Brown. Kids who go through stuff like Mike did, depression, divorce, upheaval, they don't always have the easiest time forming close relationships, trusting other people. But Mike had found Mike. And then we would share stories of like, you know, he was a... He, his father's African and his mother was from uh, Ireland. So, you know, he would talk about being this, this mixed kid and feeling ostracized and, you know, growing up in the hood. And I would talk about like, well, you know, I'm not mixed, but I went to Catholic school and then I went to, you know, public school in the hood and I was just trying to make it out. And it's like, hey, look at us both here. We have so much in common. You know, for goodness sakes, our names are both Mike. Like, what are the odds? <laughs> you know, let's be friends. <laughs> I never really had a problem making friends to be like, OK, cool. You know, we're cool. We're cool. You know, I, you know, we all operate in this capacity. But in a sense of like sharing real information and, and being very vulnerable, I really wasn't able to do that. You know, um, and now I think that's one of the reasons I, I do stand up or I do comedy where it's like, oh, I have so much to say, but I haven't been really saying it to friends and family. So let me say it to strangers because I need to say it. And I, I have so much uh, uh, experience sharing it. And, you know, sharing and making things relatable for other people. So it's like, okay, so let me just take these things that I feel and make it relatable for strangers still, because I want them to like me. It's such a weird thing. I've heard it said before that friends are the family you choose. And when you're young, choosing your friends is a process of choosing really who you want to be. You know, there's so many different stages in life. You know, it's like, you know, you go to adolescent, you know, teen, and then in those like college years, you really start forming, okay, like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm about to be an adult. And I was going through that with someone else who had, like, a similar experience. You know what I mean? Um, and because I, I guess I saw so much of myself in him, and I, I, didn't, really felt, I didn't really feel judged by him. Um, and not like other people were judging me, but I always thought that maybe they could be. 
like they did have a barometer of, oh, this guy isn't black enough or he went to a Catholic school, so he's not street enough or he was raised in Queens, so he's not Harlem enough, you know, and going to college. It's like, OK, now we have all these kids and we have no barometer for what a college student is. But now I have this friend who I met a few weeks before we even started school and we're on the same level. And it's like, OK, I'm not doing this new section of my life alone. When school was over, Mike Brown moved back to New York City, worked a lot of different jobs, went back to college to study creative writing and started thinking more and more about comedy. Mike Muchoki worked as a software developer, moved to Jersey City and got engaged to Nia, his girlfriend from college. Mike and Mike stayed very close. In uh, April, April 4th, 2010, he and his fiance were uh, murdered, executed in front of their house the night after their engagement party, oh, right? Jeez. In a, in, a, in a botched carjacking. So when I got that call Easter morning of 2010, I, I was just, you know, in a state of shock. And I think I've been in a state of shock for uh, probably a few months. Like, I remember I didn't really, like, cry when I heard. Like, I didn't accept it. I stayed to myself a lot. Remember how I said there have been two big events in Mike Brown's life? That was the second one. The road from there to stand-up comedy in a moment. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illness. Not just depression, but all kinds of mental illnesses. We enjoy having some laughs on this show. It's a way of dealing with depression, demystifying that particular disease a little bit, make it not so scary. But let's not kid ourselves. Depression is a serious disease. The good news is that people can and do get better. They get help. And that's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. It can be an awkward conversation, but Make It Okay is full of information you can use, what to say, what not to say, and stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, or other mental illnesses. Go to makeitokay.org. You can take the pledge right there to Make It Okay. Thanks so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. <laughs> Growing up in Harlem, man, I was... This is Robert. I love Harlem, and you know, I've been there all my life. You know, with my dad, which was like my my problem growing up. You know, y'all don't know how hard it was growing up in Harlem with a father. You know, <laughs> <laughs> got teased every day. You know, I tried to keep a secret to the tenth grade. You understand what I'm saying? <laughs> every day I go to school. Yo, Mike Brown. Who that dropping off to school every day, man? And I'm like, oh shit, street cred, street cred. Uh, uh, shit. That's my probation officer, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why does he keep saying he loves you? <laughs> That's Mike Brown. He grew up with depression, which manifested itself in a suicide attempt in high school. He made a best friend, Mike Muchoki, in college. Mike Muchoki and his fiance Nia Hack, were killed in a botched carjacking on the night of their engagement party. And so, Mike Brown must carry on. You open yourself up and maybe you kind of let on about, I imagine, your depression and your suicidal thoughts and ideation. And then Mike is gone. Does that make you more gun-shy to, I should rephrase that, 
This is why we pre-record interviews and don't do them live. Um, Did it make you want to not bite the bullet? Yeah, right, right. (laughs) Did it really shoot down your expectations? Um, uh, (laughs) Sorry, I'm just rifling off questions. It just keeps going and going and going. Okay. Um, <laughs> with with Mike gone, did it make you more hesitant to open yourself up to other people? Did you feel like, okay, I opened myself up and now he's gone. I'm not going to do that again. Or, did, or were, you, were you more free to do that? I think subconsciously I did kind of get very closed off to new people because I, I, already, I, I already had a sense of abandonment issues you know it's like okay so i'm with my mom and it's like oh my mom's gone you know i'm not living with her anymore and then i'm with my dad i'm like okay i just gotta adjust to this and then it's like okay now i'm off to college i don't have to live with either of them i'm in this new environment and it's always been like okay i know this this section of life is gonna end and i'm just gonna have to be cool with whatever new world i'm thrust into you know um but until mike's passing it always was like well people will always be around and when you have a friend like that uh, or, you know, someone in your life murdered, you know, it's such a crazy thing. I mean, like, I know some people who've, like, uh, you know, had friends, like, pass away in car crashes, like, things like that. When it's like, what? It doesn't make sense to you. Like, there's no logic to it because you're like, oh, I, but I just spoke to him. So I would I should be able to speak to him again. He's not sick. You know, like what what do, some random person, you know, shot him in the back of the head with a shotgun? What? Like that that's the kind of the, the, the kind of thoughts I was having. Like this doesn't make any sense. Um and so I think to protect myself emotionally, I was kind of a little uh far from meeting new people. You know, I just played everything really close to the chest for a long time. Still, talking to Mike, I really wanted to know how does a life of depression and loss lead to telling jokes for a living? When did comedy come along? Because I'm hearing that I love math and I went to the New Jersey Institute of Technology. It's not exactly (laughs) the paved path to uh, Caroline's, right? Well, I thought that's what Richard Pryor did. I thought he went to NJIT. Exactly. (laughs) Start as an engineer, work your way up to stand-up comedian. I mean, yeah. I mean, if you want to be on stage, you really have to get your engineering (laughs) degree. It's really important. Um, (laughs) So so it's a weird thing. I think, um, so when I was with my mom, and even growing up with my dad, I used to watch a lot of TV. And I remember watching a lot of Def Comedy Jam and, like, Loving Martin and Fresh Prince and just, like, laughing. And I think that... Watching those, you know, television shows that 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 like level of escapism I really liked, and um, for a little bit in in co- not in college but in uh, high school I was doing like stage plays and, and acting and I really loved doing that, but I never really full on followed that passion. You know, I always felt like oh I can be on stage I can do this, but I never really pushed for it. And I also think that like at that time my mom didn't know really what to do. And I don't think that I had enough uh, self-confidence to push and say, hey, this is the thing I want to do. Like, I, I'm, I'm focused on this. And um, after, you know, actually the last conversation I had with Mike, I was taking sketch writing classes. And 
I told him that I was doing this class. He was like, oh, you're doing classes and you're finally doing comedy? Oh, that is great. That is great. And I'm like, oh, yeah, thanks. And, you know, his, his, his fiance is on the other line, and not on the other line, but, like, in the background. And she's like, Mike's doing comedy? Finally? Oh, my God, it's about time. And I'm like, really? You guys thought I should be doing comedy? And they were like, yeah, you should be doing stand-up. You should be hosting. You're so, you're so charismatic. You're good on stage. You know how to speak. It, like, people love you. You should, you should have been doing this. You actually should be on stage. I was like, oh, I want to get on stage, too. He was like, stop being scared of it. Just do it. Like, what's holding you back from doing it? Just do it. Do it. And I was like, yeah, you know what? I, I'm going to do it. After, you know, after, after I finish this class, the next thing I'm going to do is stand up. And he, uh, and that was, uh, I think, like a Wednesday might have been a Wednesday night. No, that was a Thursday night. We had that conversation. And he was like, all right, I'm going to see you at the bachelor, uh, not the bachelor party, but the engagement party. And I was like, ah, I have this uh, class class paper, so I can't come to it. But, hey, let, we'll do lunch on Tuesday in the city. He was like, okay, yeah, we'll do lunch Tuesday in the city. Yeah, man, can't wait to see you. You know, love you, whatever, peace. And Sunday morning, he was murdered. He and his fiance were murdered. After the party? Yeah, after the party. They came home from the engagement party at uh, Delta's restaurant in uh, New Brunswick, which is a great place. And, and they all, and every year there's a, uh, we do like a, a memorial dinner and we, we uh, give like scholarships to uh, two kids. Um, but, and that's Love Mike, Love Mike Nia Foundation. Anyway, so they came home from the party, parked out in front of their house and everything happened. Um, so like that conversation just always stays fresh with me. But it's also this thing of like, I want to do comedy. I've always wanted to do comedy for so long. I've always been doing what I think other people kind of suggested I should do and wanted me to do. But it, there's a time in your life where you're like, okay, you've, the world has given me enough, uh, uh, learning. So now I can make my own decisions. I still learn every day, but now I can make my own decisions. I don't have to make other people happy. And that's what comedy is for me. So your friends asked you what's holding you back. What was holding you back? Um, I, I think the fear. I think the fear of like people not understanding why I wanted to do comedy, or thinking uh, that people don't wouldn't think I would be successful at doing comedy or failing at comedy. And when I, I think I realized one day where it was like, well, who cares about all that stuff? I care about trying to do it. If I try to do it and I fail at doing it. That's something that I have to live with. It doesn't matter if people like what I'm doing or not. I mean, like my friends or, you know, that doesn't matter. It, it's, it's on me. And why am I letting what they could possibly feel, you know, uh, supersede what I could feel? It, it's about my feelings, not theirs. So the bliss gets followed. But there are more challenges to be faced. Making it in New York as a comic is really, really hard. Mike's 35 now and has only been able to be a full-time comic for about a year. It's a tough life. It doesn't pay much. You're constantly hustling for stage time, and it's brutally competitive. Mike Brown isn't even the only Mike Brown in New York doing comedy. And all the while, you're trying to make people laugh. And in Mike's case, depression is coloring all of that. A few months ago, Mike hit a wall. So, you know, like when you're doing stand-up comedy um, and you're just trying to, like, you know, you're trying to make ends meet, you know, you're doing shows, you're getting paid, things are good, and then sometimes things aren't good. And you're just like, where is this next check going to come from? Like, where, <laughs> you know, how are we going to make these ends meet? And um, I I just had got some, some like, 
like sad news on a gig that I was that was trying to get, and I was just really like, ugh, like I couldn't get this thing, you know what I mean? And it just like really just threw me for a loop, and I was just like, why am I even bothering? And I just like started going in the spiral of just like depression and doubt and depression and doubt, and not seeing you know uh, uh, a light at the end of the tunnel, you know, t- to say so. I remember I was just like, man, I, I, I just like wanted to to die or I wanted I wanted that feeling to stop. And I was like, the only way that feeling could stop is if I stopped living. Right. But uh, I think that there wasn't like a crescendo to it. It was just kind of like a beat down. It was it was kind of the same kind of like, OK, this is it. Whatever. It was the same kind of non-dramatic sense of resignation that Mike described having during his suicide attempt as a teenager. It had recurred. It was this past October. I had a serious, like, mental breakdown. Like, it, I just was, I, I just couldn't do it. Like, I, I called the suicide hotline for uh, 30 minutes, um, spoke to them. Um, I, I don't say I tried cutting myself because I don't count it as cutting, but it is cutting, but I don't count it as cutting, where um, I opened up a big razor and I put it to my skin to see how it felt. And again, I was like, I want to die right now, but I don't want to hurt myself. And I just like sat in the bathroom, just sitting on the floor, just like hugging myself and just like just breathing really heavily because I was just like, what am I doing? What am I doing? Where, you know, what's going on? And I, uh, the next, the next morning I text, uh, Sam Grittner. I know he's done the show before. And, um, I was just like, man, I had a breakdown. I don't know what to do. I think I might go check in at a hospital or something. I know you told me about doing that, and and it helped you, so what should I do? And he kind of just, like, talked me through it. He was like, okay, great. He was like, great. You texted me. Good job. It felt like I was, like, going into a game. You know what I mean? Uh He was like, great. Okay, you texted me. Good job. This is what we're going to do. Okay, you ready? First thing you do, let all these people know where you're going to be. Okay, next. Go with it. You know what I mean? Find a hospital close to you. know. Um, And so I went went into a hospital. I checked myself in. I, I did the whole intake. And being in the intake... For, you know, it was less than 24 hours. It might have been like 20 or something hours, whatever. But uh, being in there and seeing how how other people were suffering and their problems versus my own, you know, um, I had or I have mixed anxiety, mood, and depression order or mixed mood, anxiety, and depression, uh, something like that. And... It's it was like, okay, this is this is kind of this could be manageable, but I need to really start focusing on helping myself. You know, um, I can't be scared to get help. I can't be scared to talk about it. You know, Um, like even even like doing this podcast, I mean, like. Like my mom would be like, you know, oh, you don't want to talk about that. And when I'm like, no, I, I kind of have to talk about that. Like, you know, the, the problem was I wasn't talking about any of this for so long. <laughs> you know what I mean? So Mike Brown is sharing what's going on with people he knows, with the world. We're all kind of a substitute now for Mike Muchoki. And he's cobbling together a plan for how to get better, as everyone with depression must if they're going to improve things. 
I like do a lot of like introspection, a lot of coffee, a lot of Zoloft, a lot of talking to friends. Um, <laughs> listen, Zoloft and coffee is great. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why no one's told me about this. Some people this. like Splenda. Some people like cream. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I do my, you know, I do my little dose. And I drink my little coffee and I'm, I'm good to go for the day. Um, but it's it's like. Not like the world. The world isn't like you know, like binary. It's not like you do this or you do this other thing. It's uh, it's like okay, yeah, things things are bad, but you can do something to change it. You know, it's like yeah, that 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 thought of even like killing yourself. It's like oh, you can kill yourself, or you can do something to change your present situation. Right, because if you kill yourself, you're not you're not going to improve. Exactly. And he's asking himself some tough questions. The thought of like, is there a God? Is there an afterlife? You know, um, uh, perspectives like, you know, we all have these different lives that we lead. But, you know, it's like, how do we know that we're all not living one life? Like, hey, we all are all connected because of this thing and nature and life. And when you die, where does the spirit go? And are we just living, you know, there's so many different choices. And I could have made this choice. My life could have been this way, but I'm living in this reality, whatever. I, I was just going, you know, um, for lack of a better word, you know, I was just going in thoughts, you know, um, and it. It, it was scary because I never really started to really think about it before. And I it it was the first time like I talked myself down. Oh, you know, like I was like, Mike, what are you doing? You know what I mean? I'm like, hey, so before when you would get depressed and you might feel suicidal, you always be like, man, I got this suicide, but I, I can't I can't do it because. My best friend was murdered and he lost his life because somebody else took it away. Somebody else took his life away. So why would you go take your life away? You know, out of respect for your friend, you can't do it. And I think after, you know, checking myself in, it's still a a thing that I'm getting used to. But it's like you can't do it because you want to live like I want to live for me. It's not that I want to live because... I'm missing my friend. I mean, it's partially that, but it's also like, I want to live for me. It's okay to be selfish. It's okay to want to live for yourself. It's okay to want to do stand-up comedy. You know, it's okay to want to talk about it on a podcast where you might touch some people's lives, you might not, but it's okay to do it because you want to do it. Mike Brown is getting noticed more and more for his comedy, and he's talking more about mental health when he performs it. He recently made a video with Vice starting to talk about depression on stage now and it's weird you know as a black man like this shit, shit is weird talking like you know it's just weird talking about it in real life you know what i mean like i can't even talk to like my friends about depression because like the homies they're like the fuck you talking about you know what i mean like they're like the fuck, like you just de- you depressed like what you sad and shit is that what you listen to celine dion now is that what you doing is that like on a scale of one to drake how much do you cry just let me know <laughs> People, when they meet me, they don't think that I'm depressed because I'm so, like, you know, upbeat and happy and, and, you know, having fun. But it's like, oh, well, some of that is because I'm so depressed that I I can run around and have fun, you know. Um, So and talking about it on stage, like when you talk about heavy stuff, people are like, wait, what? Where where is this coming from? So uh, now it's trying to talk about it in a way that. Everyone can laugh, especially the people who are depressed, and say, hey, these are my experiences. And also being aware of, like, you know, I'm I'm starting to talk about going through intake and saying, like, you know, and and breaking down how, like, that was 
my experience and my perspective, but also not like making mental illness the butt of the joke. You know what I mean? Right. No, you make make human experiences and, and human vulnerabilities. There's a lot of humor to be had. Exactly. Exactly. So that's 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 where I'm kind of just like tackling it. Um, and and also in the sense of like, hey, I want this to be funny. Like, I, I don't want to necessarily like make a point first. Like, I want it to be as funny as it can be, but also think about, OK, like what exactly am I saying? I have this microphone in front of me and. You know, I, I'm affecting millions of people somehow, you know, or, or tens of people or hundreds of thousands or whatever. So how does that, you know, what am I saying? What affects them? Because I remember hearing other people's words affect me so much. And so now I'm kind of just like focused on my voice and what I can bring. And remember, everything Mike's doing with his comedy, with his openness, is going against the tide of what he was raised to believe. Growing up in New York... It's a very different time. Things were really in your face. So you kind of didn't have that time to develop in a sense of like, hey, I'm vulnerable. It's like, no, you can't be vulnerable. The city never sleeps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what right. I mean? Like, you can't, there's no time to be sad. If you're going to be sad, you're going to miss the train and you got to get to where you got to get to go. You know what I mean? So you have to just like, you know, take the hits and keep on moving. And, um, I think I think it's that, but also in the black community, like we just don't like we 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 have a whole thing of like don't tell nobody your business, you know, mind your own business, you know, (laughs) that's that's what it is. It's 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 survival. It it was especially like growing up in the '80s. It's like it's survival. It's you're gonna go to college to get a job. It's not like hey, what are your interests? Study that in college and follow that career. It's like no. Go to college, get a job, mind your business, don't be up in people's business, don't bring anybody's business into my house. Like, it was a totally different thing. So it's like you're kind of training to survive in America. You're not training to be, you know, this own, you know, individualized person. And Mike's back in therapy. Do you know how hard that is? I mean, like, it, it, it is... Insane. Like, the, just the whole idea of therapy of like, okay, so you're just going to go to this stranger and you're just going to tell them all the messed up things about you. <laughs> and then pay money for the privilege to do <laughs> and it. And then pay money. I got to pay money for this? Because I know you're judging me. Like, that, right. the, like, I know you're judging me and I'm paying money to be judged. Mm-mm, God's not judging. So why am I paying money? <laughs> For you to judge me, I go to I go to I go to church. Hey, I could pay God with my with my tithes or whatever, and he or she, whoever's up there, praise him, is not judging me. And that's the feeling that I, I would have. And I think I think sometimes a lot of uh, uh, black people might have had like like we have that shared experience of like trying to make it in an America where you you know you're growing up and you're like watch out for the man. So I'm starting out with watch out for this luminous power, you know, uh, uh, institution that's trying to keep me down. That's where I'm starting my life. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, that's my base. Well, now I feel bad as a white guy that I lured you in here to talk about your problems. <laughs> I'm not going to charge you, though. I'm not going to charge you. <laughs> Good, because I have no money to pay. <laughs> it works out best for both of us. <laughs> Mike Brown sounded like he was in a healthy spot when I talked to him, which is not the same thing as being cured, but it's moving in a good direction. Not long after his recent breakdown, Mike arranged to go out to dinner with two people at the same time, his mom 
and his dad. And I'm just like kind of staring at them in disbelief. And they're like, you know, that they don't know what to do because it's the first time like I checked myself in and they're sitting together and they're like, wow. And I'm like, I was like, this is a big deal. I was like, can I just take this in? They're like, what, what are you talking about? I said, this is the first time we've all been to dinner together ever. I was like, I'm 35. This is the first time we've all been together outside eating dinner at a place together. This is the first time it's ever happened. And my mom was like, no, it hasn't been. I'm like, mom. Name me a time. Well, I don't know, but I'm sure it's been. I'm like, Mom, no, we're going to get to the bottom of some things at this dinner, okay? <laughs> and that's fine. That's okay. You know what I mean? Like, that's okay. We're starting from that. Like, like we have to just accept that this is the first time, and we're starting, and we're going somewhere better. It, it kind of hit her, like, in a weird way. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm okay, but I need to be able—we we need to start in the same base reality if we're going to start, like, really making some progress with our relationship. You know what I mean? And then uh, even with my—even, like, talking to my dad, I, he, you know, he was like, you know, when you feel like that, you could just call me. I'm like, Dad, we, we haven't had conversations about just, like, regular stuff. I'm not going to call you at the end of the life conversation. This, that's not the first time. <laughs> well, and, and how interesting to be able to sit down— and have dinner with the fundamental foundational elements of your mental health <laughs> like, and, yeah. and sit at a table with those two elements <laughs> and try to figure shit out. Oh, yeah, it 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 was a very it, it was a really good dinner, you know, um, and, and it's like a thing that we're, we're going to be trying to do more often. Um, you know, I'm saying like every every two months we'll do one. Um, but I, I think it's really helped bring us together. You know, in 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 a special way, and I think a part of me always wanted to have that dinner. What do you know now about mental illness that you wish you knew a long time ago? I wish that I knew that I wasn't the only one having these problems. I wish I I wish I knew that I could get treatment to fix those problems. I wish I knew that you can be okay with having these problems, and that's the first step to dealing with them, you know. Um, or not not okay, you just got to, like, accept it. Like, hey, I have these problems, I have to deal with it. Um, I think I've just been running away from it for so long and it was always there, and I always kind of, like, acknowledged that it was there, but I wasn't ready to, like, to get help or to do something. It was like, oh, yeah, I have, you know, I, I have depression. Okay, next. It's like, no, you have depression. Do you want to still be depressed? And that's, you know, it's, it's taken me that long to get to that second part of, you know, having depression. <laughs> I don't do too, mo- too many jokes about my dad. Like, I, I'm trying to talk about my mom on stage now. It's, it was weird, because, like, it feels like a safe space. My mom's getting a divorce right now, and it's messing with me. I mean, it's just, like, a lot of strange things are happening because of it. And, um, so me and my mom, we matched on Tinder, and it's not... No! <laughs> no it's not my fault. It's not my fault. <laughs> I'm not paying attention when I'm on Tinder. I'm just, I'm just swiping to the right for everybody. You know what I mean? I'm letting the hostages go. Go, 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 go. <laughs> but mom, you knew it was me. You saw my face. My face looks just like your face with the beard. How dare you swipe from me? 
And she's like, oh, I'm not gonna say no to my baby. What? <laughs> Mike Brown is on Twitter at YoMikeBrown. More about the Love Mike Nia Foundation is at lovemikenia.org. We also have links at our Facebook, where you can also find more clips of Mike Brown on stage in action. The Hilarious World of Depression is produced by American Public Media. Our producer is Chrissy Pease. Kate Moose is executive producer. Our recording engineer for this episode was Corey Schreppel. Our technical director was Veronica Rodriguez. Christina Lopez is our sworn guardian of web and social media. Thanks also to Nate Toby. Our theme song is called Pagliacci, and it was written and performed by our good friend Rhett Miller. Much more about Rhett is at his website, as you might expect, rhettmiller.com. If you need help, confidential help is available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illness. MakeItOK.org has information to check out for yourself or for someone else. Starting a conversation on this topic can be awkward. Make It OK has tips on what to say, what not to say, stories of hope from people who've been there. You can take the pledge to Make It OK at MakeItOK.org. We're on Twitter at THW of D. That's THW OFD. You can write to us at flawed, THWOD, at AmericanPublicMedia.org. And we're on the World Wide Web with a website, HilariousWorld.org. Be sure to check out our Facebook page, too. We have all sorts of wonderful things there, some good discussions going on as well. Write a review for us at Apple Podcasts, if you will. I hope it's a positive one. And subscribe. Apparently, the more buttons you push on Apple Podcasts, the more things you click, the better it is for us to reach more people, which is what we want. On our next episode, musician Rhett Miller on how he approached writing our theme song. You know, this song that you're hearing right now. I was a little stressed out about how to convert um, this idea you have about talking about mental health um, with, you know, creative type people um, and how to make a song out of that. Because in a way, every song I've ever written has been some version of talking about mental health and the idea of creation as... um, Uh, defense against the encroaching darkness or something. I'm John Moe. Bye now.